Father, we confess we are the broken who need to be raised to life. Thank you for what you grant us in Jesus Christ, for the hope that is ours, for all that you have given us. As we open your word now, Father, would you anoint us with your spirit to hear what you would say to us as a church here today. Use my words, God, as your words. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You're going to have a seat. We're continuing our studies in the book of Revelation today, the seven churches that are found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. If you've got a Bible, feel free to turn there. We're going to be in the beginning of chapter 3 today. We have crossed the halfway mark. Uh, Pete Ott last Sunday took us through Jesus' words to the church at Thyatira. And as we uh, have done that, there's just a reminder that there's a basic pattern to all of these uh, messages to the church that each time Jesus reveals himself using one of the characteristics of the opening vision of John in chapter 1, then he tells each church what he knows about them, and he commends them and or issues a warning, and there is a word to them. As I've been reading these passages and thinking about it and reading some other offers, it's been interesting that there's a variety of ways that writers try to help us see what's going on here. Sometimes they read, they kind of compare it to like getting a report card from a school. You know, that, that feeling that you have, you've been at the classes, you've been taking part, and now the teacher takes time to write out a report about your progress or your lack of progress. I remember getting my report cards and there was a continuing theme, Paul should try to participate more in the discussions. He's not always engaged in the group. He should learn how to ask more questions. I think I still have problems with committee meetings. I still have problems with just sitting there and listening to everybody else, but I hopefully have grown through that and have learned how to better uh, engage in those ways. But it's that sense of an outside view of who we are to help us move forward. This is Jesus's report cards on the churches. Someone else says it's like taking your car into the mechanic. You know, take your car in, you need that checkup, and they plug it up to the computer, and they run the diagnostics, and they're able to tell you what's working well, but also what needs attention. It's kind of those things that you can't see, maybe what you're not aware of. Your valves are sticking, the engine's ready to fall out. You know, what's, what's happening under there that you're just happily and content to drive the thing, but there's issues that need to be dealt with. Jesus is this mechanic for the churches. Another picture is just the picture of a doctor. One person I said, it's how a doctor uses an x-ray. You know, from the outside, everything looks fine, but they put us on the x-ray table and the x-ray exposes those inner issues so that a prescription for healing can be given. Things we might not be aware of that's happened within us, or we've got an ache or a pain, and, and they, it's able to have that x-ray and show us these are the things that needs to be taken care of. Jesus is that technician. He's seeing past the exterior facades of these churches and getting to the heart of the matter. And it's not for punishment's sake. It's for healing. It's for refining his church. It's to raise his bride up in glory. 
And we've said that these, these letters to the churches aren't to be read just as individual reports. You know, one is for Pergamum, and they better shape up in that. But because it's seven, and it's being delivered to all seven, and delivered to us now, each one of these reports, each one of these x-rays helps us collectively. And we can see ourselves in any of these churches at any given moment, I think. And we need to be on guard for these issues raised. Two of the seven churches get only commendations from Jesus, no criticisms. The church at Smyrna, a church who is showing incredible grace in suffering. They were showing a perseverance, and Jesus reminded them they will need to suffer even more. And the church at Philadelphia, we're going to hear about that church next week. Just as an aside, that's Pastor Dave's first week with us. He's going to take us to that church, the church in Philadelphia. Uh, we can be praying for him. He's, uh, his first official day in the office is tomorrow. Uh, he'll be arriving here and staying, and he'll be at various meetings through the week with us as we start to see his ministry and that involvement with us. I'm sure we're all really looking forward to that. Be praying for them as a family. They have a conditional offer on their house. The condition is that the people buying their house need to sell their house. Can you be praying for a real estate deal? <laughs> Be praying that those people that are selling their house so they can buy the Gray's house, that's going to be done, all right? Pray that a buyer will be found and they can get that half of the equation because then they need to be looking here and finding something as well. He will, uh, of course, be sharing more of that as he arrives among us. Be in prayer for all of those transitions. He'll be here next week. We'll have a special time and a prayer and just a great welcome. So look forward to that. Um, so two of the churches get only commendations from Jesus. One of the churches gets only criticism, and that's the church at Laodicea. We're going to deal with that one two weeks from today. Uh, Ian Havercroft, my son at uh, Redemption Bible Chapel, is going to be here to finish the series off for us. And it's only bad news for that church. We'll see how he walks us through that. The other four churches, and the fourth of which we're dealing with this morning, get mixed reviews. Jesus approves some things, and he disapproves some things. Ephesus, Marcio started us there a few weeks ago. Ephesus had lost their first love. They had good deeds, but they'd lost their first love, that heart for Jesus. Pergamum, Derek took us there. And we saw how they were losing truth and that standing for doctrine, the gospel that was needed among them. Thyatira, last Sunday, that was a church that was giving itself into compromise, that they were seeing the subtle dangers of cultural idolatry that was slipping in among them. Holiness was being lost. And today we come to this fourth church in that kind of series that has this mixed review, the fifth church in our series, the church at Sardis. John Piper makes the comment overall about these four churches. He says, here's the point. Jesus did not write any of these churches off. He said the day may come when he would write them off, make war on them with the sword of his mouth, come against them like a thief, bring them into sickness, and if necessary, take away their candlestick, put them out of existence, but not yet. He gives them all time to repent. That's the call of these messages. That's the call here. Jesus refining his church. Come to me, O church, he calls. Come and know the glory of walking with me, of who you're being called to become as my bride. 
So in Revelation 3, 1 to 6, we read this. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. And the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's walk through this together. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, I, these are the words of him, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's a, uh, a word that goes back to the first chapter of John, when John has that vision of Jesus, that there is Jesus among the candlesticks, and he is holding seven stars in his hand. The seven spirits is alluded to in a little different way. And so just a couple of minutes to think through what uh, Jesus is presenting himself as to this church. The seven stars that he holds in his right hand, as we see back in chapter 1, verse 20, we read there that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the stars are the angels of the seven churches. There's various thoughts about what that actually means. The, the angels are never literally identified for them. Are they literally angels? Some would say that there is an angel that oversees each church in the economy of God. Some would say that this represents the leadership of the church. Some would say that it's the sense of it is the church family, that God has them in his hand. The agreement always, though, is that the image is that Jesus holds the churches, that Jesus in his right hand, that hand that represents authority, represents power, that he holds the churches up and he stands in the midst of those candlesticks that represent the churches themselves, but Jesus holds those, those who are in authority and holds those who represent the churches. And then in this, this uh, beginning of chapter 3, we also see that in his hand he also holds the seven spirits. What are the seven spirits? Who better are the seven spirits? No direct explanation is given to us, but there is a context from which we can gather who the spirit is. A quick survey for you. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 4, John there writes to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And he says, grace and peace to you from who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Remember that. Before the throne, before God, and before Jesus Christ, these seven spirits before the throne. 
Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. From that same throne, as, as John's vision continues and we're brought into that heavenly perspective of the throne room of God, we read there that from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder, the glory and the majesty of God being represented. And in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And then we read in chapter 5, continuing that whole image. We read there that John then says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set out into all the earth. So the lamb, who we come to understand is Jesus before this throne, has seven eyes, the seven spirits of God his eyes with which he sees sent out into all of the earth. Do you see in each of these cases, these seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit, as some translate, are presented as being part of the revelation of God himself. You have God the Father seated on the throne. You have Jesus in his presence and you have the sevenfold spirit leads us to understand that these seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit is the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of Christ. So as Jesus stands in the midst of the church, he has in his one hand the angels of the church, the, the pastors, the leadership of that picture of being connected. And in his other hand, he has the spirit of God. That sense of bringing these together, that it's the spirit who is at work within the churches. That sevenfold idea of the Spirit is not just found here. If you go back into Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, in a very kind of root passage in Isaiah, talking about the coming of Messiah and who he will be, we read there that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And then listen here. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And as you read this, and I've put it there in yellow for you to follow, you're going to see a sevenfold presentation of the Spirit of God. So back in Isaiah, you have this idea of the sevenfold, the seven characteristics of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, it begins there, will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of God, the sevenfold characteristics of the Spirit. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This coming one who is coming out and is the branch. He's coming up from the fruit of Jesse. This one who will be the savior and the deliverer is going to rise up for us. And so there you see this beginning idea that the spirit is presented to us in this sevenfold kind of nature. So John goes back and he picks up that image. So again, it's the image of Jesus holding the churches in his one hand, and the Spirit of God is with him that's holding him in the other, and he brings them together. So we see the intertwining of the Spirit in the life of the church. I believe it's so important for us to understand that it is the Spirit who gives us life. It's the Spirit who brings the reality of Jesus to bear in the inner being of who we are. 
that the moment of our salvation, of our confession of faith in Jesus, when we are justified, we are indwelt with the Spirit. And it is the Spirit then who grants in the church his power and his grace for us to become who he wants us to be. And we're going to see that it's so crucial for the church in Sardis to lay hold of that very idea. That is the spirit that they need to understand who is at work. Because when Jesus reveals the x-rays to them, he has some bad news for them. You see that prognosis that comes out in the rest of verse 1. It's quite a full first verse. He says, to the one are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars in his hands. I know your deeds. And this is what he sees in their deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. <laughs> Man, that, that's an incredible comment to make about somebody. You have a great reputation, but you're empty inside. You know, you have this great shell that, that puts forward all kinds of positive vibes, but when Jesus looks at the x-rays, he says, but there's nothing there. You're dead on the inside. How is this, how can this be? What is happening within this church? few different writers express things this way. Kevin DeYoung says, this church has acclamations from all but the one who really matters, Jesus. <laughs> right? They've got a great reputation. People look at this church and think, man, they've got it all together. I want to be at that church. But Jesus says it's dead. Eric Alexander says, the dead are very happy with a church with a great reputation. Right? It's nice to belong to a place that just people know and it's got a good vibe about it. And the dead are very happy being there. Why? Because there's really no call upon them to be anything else. For in general, their concern is for what others think of them. They're content to just be well thought of. Reminds me of what Jesus says back in Matthew chapter 6 in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Then he goes on to talk about giving and about prayer and about fasting. And each time he says to them, be careful when you are doing these things that you are not doing it just to be seen by men. Because he says, if you are doing these things to be seen by others, you actually have your reward in full. You're going to get everything you want. Other people will give you a nod of approval and say, that's impressive, look how much you gave. That's impressive, look at how you pray. That's impressive, look how you fast. And Jesus says, and that is all your reward. <laughs> you'll have the nod, you'll have the accolade of other people. See, when we're doing these things to be seen by others, our motivations are empty, they're hollow. It's easy to fall into that. It's so easy to fall into just the motions of the Christian life and miss its inherent power for us. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul says to Timothy, watch out for those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. 
Timothy, as the church is going to grow, he says in the end times, in the last days, there's going to be terrible days coming upon him. And he lists this whole list of things, that there's going to be false prophets and, and unholiness and unrighteousness. But he says what's happening is they have a form of godliness, but they deny such power. And Paul says, ignore or reject or stay away from such people. See, it's a people of reputation with no power. Kevin DeYoung, when I was reading some of his notes, he made a nice list of all the isms that can create that shell. He talked about formalism. Formalism, building beautiful structures and, and wonderful liturgies and having quiet, somber, what we, some would call just a reverence in a room. But it might not be reverence, it might just be boredom. <laughs> might just be unattached. You see, formalism in and of itself can just be that. We can have a beautiful structure, but nothing driving it. The opposite can be true, too, an informalism. Our church would tend more to be on the informal side. We don't carry a lot of sort of beautiful liturgies. We do some things once in a while, free-flowing. We have free expression. We kind of talk about the rules, but we understand we're not under the law. We're under grace. But in that form, there can also be an emptiness because in a sense, they become their own rules. Traditionalism, do what we've always done. <laughs> Just to keep on and churches can fall into traditionalism. The question always needs to be asked, is anything happening that cannot be explained in merely human terms? Every year we do Christmas hampers. We do a big Christmas dinner. It can become just a tradition to us. It can become just something that we do every year because we're known as the church that does this every year. And there is an expectation in our neighborhood. We started sign-ups for it this week. And there's just a big lineup of people coming and it gets, it, anyway, it gets almost crazy at times. There's pushing and shoving to get their name on the list. And you say, there's plenty of space. We'll get pampers for all of you. But there's just that sense of people want these things. Right? And we can get caught up in just we're doing it because we do it. That's why we said today we want to make it personal. This is more than about just giving people a box of food. We want to extend a hand of grace. And if all we have is we give out food boxes, it can be empty. It can be a hollow shell. It can be just a reputation. Legalism, spiritualism, entertainmentism. That was a great word. <laughs> Right, all these things that churches can fall into. His last one was bigism. Just a sense. He works there. He's more in the States. Canada doesn't have quite the same problem. In the States, bigger is always better in every way. But we can fall into it. We can fall into that thinking that, that being big in and of itself somehow means success. You know, the larger you get, the more people that are part of something, it must mean that it has more significance. I would suggest the other side is true as well. Smallism for some people can become just an empty reputation. You know, we just want to be small and keep it unique and intimate. And that becomes the purpose. That becomes the fulfillment. You see, in all of these things, what we're really being driven towards is that we need to guard ourselves, that we are not just living out of a reputation that there actually is substance to who we are becoming and who we now are. 
it's a man by the name of Alexander that he points this out. He says, it's interesting to note that there's no mention of opposition to this church with the big reputation. Could it be that, they, that no one is really bothered by them because they have no real impact? <laughs> right? Big reputation, but they don't really bother anybody out in the culture. See, the church will always bother the culture. The church will always be a call to change. The church will always be a call to righteousness. The problem with reputations is at some points they collapse. And the rot gets discovered. I remember when we discovered at a cottage that we had when I was growing up that we had carpenter ants. And my dad, during the course, it was a cottage that we'd had for like 70 years. His parents had it and got passed on. And at one point, he had covered all the walls with this beautiful, knotty pine tongue and groove. And, you know, it looked really great. I remember in the one bedroom that we had, there was a beam and it was all covered with this knotty pine. And one spring when we came back to the cottage, we realized that there was sawdust on the floor. And it was kind of like, oh, like, that's kind of weird. Where's that coming from? And so started to do some investigation and realized that something was inside the beam. And so dad got up and he had to take off some of this knotty pine and realized that these ants had got in and that the beam that was holding up kind of that end of the cottage was almost disintegrated by so many ants that infested this thing. And they'd just been chewing merrily away for who knows how long, but because it was so well sealed, there was just this pile of sawdust. I remember when he took the boards off, just there was this flood of just <laughs> stuff falling out, along with ants, which was really... <laughs> Creepy. My, my wife wasn't my wife at that point. She wouldn't have stayed in the cottage if she had known that. You know, but until it was exposed, it looked really good. And you see, that's what's happening here. You have a reputation of being alive, but Jesus says you're dead. There is no life happening within you. That's the first verse. <laughs> wouldn't you love to be that church? Whew, great start, Jesus. <laughs> you know, what, what's next? What's the remedy? Verse 2. What's it say? Wake up! Sorry, I saw somebody jump. <laughs> but that's basically what Jesus says. Right? Wake up is what he starts with. He says, if, if you have a reputation and yet there's, I, I see that you're dead, what is necessary is you need to wake up. And that in itself, though it's a warning and though, though his comment is so against them, do you hear the good news in that? He's saying death is not fatal for you. You can be woken from this death. You can shake off this slumber that you've fallen into. I would suggest that this is the heart of revival. And revival is this continuing cycle that has to happen within God's church, that there needs to be awakening of churches. There needs to be a renewal back to the glory and the reality of Jesus Christ. Revival is this call to wake up, to become aware of the truth of God and the truth of ourselves. 
Reading about revival through the course of the church's history is a wonderful thing, and the two common elements are that sense of there is such a renewed awareness of the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God. The people shudder before him and are drawn to him. And combined with that, as with Isaiah, who saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he said, woe is me, we see the truth about ourselves. We see who we really are before the Lord. So Jesus calls this church to wake up. Come out of your slumber. Understand who I am and who you are in light of what is taking place within your church. And then he gives some instructions. How do we wake up? Because as you hear that, you know, Jesus, if he yelled it in your ear like I just yelled it, you might be startled out of your sleep. But Jesus is wanting to do that by his spirit in your life. The spirit will call into your life, but you need to be listening. You need to be in a place where you're ready to hear. So Jesus goes on and he gives them these instructions. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished of the sight of my God. He's saying, strengthen what remains. Surgery may be needed here. Some serious pruning is maybe called for. We had a big oak tree that was up at our cottage, and there was a big crack down one side, and I had a... a um, Arborist, thank you. I was going to say a botanist. And I thought, what, would he, what good would he be? I had an arborist in. He was looking. He was going to trim some of the branches. And I said, what about this crack? Do I need to be worried about it? He said, oh, we'll have a look at it. And I kind of pictured him going over and kind of prodding the tree. And maybe he was going to wrap it with something to kind of give it some support. And he went to his truck and he came back with this big wooden mallet. And he began just whacking the tree. I'm kind of like, whoa, whoa. And he started breaking off the bark. And a big gash appeared down the side of this tree. I'm thinking, this is worse than it was. You know, what are you doing? You know, what, what's happening? And he began to experience, because he says what's happened is that tree had experienced some damage. There was something that happened to that tree. It got, he suggested, it was out in my parking lot. Maybe years ago, somebody backed into it. You know, and they, they rammed the tree, or maybe somebody's was... Whatever happened, the tree had become damaged, and the bark had cracked. But what he said was, in behind that, there was life, but it was being smothered now, because this bark was no longer living. This bark had died, and insects and fungus and everything could get in behind the bark. So he had to peel it all back and take it all away so that what was in behind there could be renewed. And some new bark and some new things could, could come and be a part of that. So you've got to get rid of the damage. You've got to get rid of that which is causing the death to be present there. You know, we may need to call on the Spirit to do some spiritual life surgery within us. You know, to strengthen what remains. Because the good news is there is that which remains within us. And it's calling upon the Spirit to wake up, a little self-examination, and say, oh Lord, would you strip away that which is causing death so that your life can shine out through me? It's some self-examination. We have to be asking ourselves, is, is our experience all there is to know? 
if I become content, if I become satisfied with kind of where my walk with Christ has led me to, and I'm, I'm going through the motions now, but there's no fresh life. Are you tired trying to live as a Christian, following the rules? See, holding a reputation can be exhausting. You know, trying to keep it all together if there's no life happening within. Do you hear the Spirit of God at work? Do you have an idea of His presence? It's hard to live with just a reputation. I mean, you see it in athletes. Athletes can have a great reputation, but as they start to near the end of their career, they might try to live off their reputation, but it begins to show, right? They're just, they can't, they can't perform the way they once did. See, and Jesus is saying, you have a reputation, but you're dead, and it's going to fall apart. Strengthen what remains. How do we strengthen it? Verse 3, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. What did you receive? The gospel. What did you receive? Jesus Christ. What did you receive? The Spirit of God dwelling within you. That by his redemption that he has called you to be his children. This is where life was found for you. This is where eternal life was granted to you. And he says, hold it fast. Hang on to what you have. And maybe it's calling out to the Spirit again and saying, oh, Spirit of God, refresh and restore my heart. Let me see where I've grown cold. Let me see where I've, I've been embittered. Let me see where I've been wounded so that we can take away those pieces of bark from my life that your life will be refreshed within me. And then at the end, he says, and repent. And repent. Turn away from that which is, is, is dead, from that which is away from Christ, and go back to where you started this life in Jesus. Go back to where his life was new and fresh for you. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you received. Hold fast, obey the word, embrace God's spirit. And if you won't, there is a warning. End of verse 3. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. For the people of Sardis, this was probably a very apt illustration Sardis was seen as an impregnable city, had great walls around it, and they felt so secure. But in their history, there was twice that they had been overcome by an opposing enemy. How did that happen? By stealth. <laughs> the armies came at night. The armies came not with a huge mob, but with a few people that were able to breach the walls because unsuspecting guards had grown lazy in protecting. And they breached the walls. Jesus says, I will come like a thief, and I will take from you what is no longer yours to keep. There is good news, though. The good news for Sardis, verse 4. Yet you have a people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. There is still among you a remnant who are living for me. 
that their clothes haven't become dirty by, by whatever it is that's within their church that's just reputation. And they will walk with me dressed in white. They're worthy. And the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. There is a remnant to lead the church out of this shallow, empty shell of reputation and bring them back into reality. As I read that, I think, oh, how desperate we need each other. Because I know in my heart and my life, I can drift into reputation and try to just live that way. Then I've got it together enough and I can just, but I need people, this remnant that speak out and say, look what the Spirit is doing and cause a longing in my heart to be drawn back into this relationship, to walk with Jesus again, to shed the soiled clothes, the mediocrity and be brought back into this vibrant relationship with Jesus, to be dressed with him in white. It speaks of this cleansed life, of knowing what it is to be forgiven, of knowing what it is to be free, of knowing what it is to understand the power of Christ and his spirit within me, to be worthy, not because of who I am or what I do, but because of the cross because of the assurance that my name is in his book and will never be blotted out, and he will acknowledge me before the Father because he has saved me, because he is the one who has drawn me to himself. This is where we constantly need to go back to again and again, because, church, we do have a great reputation. We've got a great reputation. This year, God has blessed us in manifold ways. And we can live on that reputation or we can live in the power of the Spirit, continually calling upon Him to refresh our hearts and awaken us anew to what He wants to accomplish fresh for us in the days that are still to come. This is where we want to follow Him and to move forward with Him. I just realized that we were going to have communion this morning and we forgot to set it up. <laughs> In my notes, I just looked and thought, I'm going to call you to the Lord's table. We're good? We're good? Did we get it? Okay, well done, guys. You guys have got me covered. Let me continue with my notes. Today, we're going to come to the Lord's table. The baskets are somewhere at the back. <laughs> we have a good team that covers for my follies. As we sing the next song, we're going to pass out those elements. We're going to ask the elders to go meet those ushers at the back, pick up the baskets, and we'll distribute these elements. As we distribute these elements, as we come out of this, this warning and this uh, sense of what the church is being called to, we remember that we take this bread, we take this cup, as we identify with Jesus Christ. As we identify with him afresh today, it's a time for us to be examined and drawn near. So let the song that we'll sing prepare us, and then after we sing, we'll come, and we will we'll take the bread and the cup together this morning. So team, come back up. Forgot to do that today, too. You guys are good. So as we sing, let us prepare ourselves to receive this bread and the cup and come before the Lord together. <laughs>